My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. Today's episode is about neoliberalism. What is neoliberalism? It is an ideology that believes in the introduction of competitive market norms into what were historically non-market domains, healthcare, education, electricity, water provision, etc. All of these services that were part of the compromise between labor and capital right around the mid-20th century are now available for transaction through the marketplace. In today's episode, I consider the basis of neoliberalism and how ultimately it undermined then the democratic capitalist compromise of the 20th century. So uh, there's one thing that uh, over the years I've had to come to terms with. Um, and what I've come to, had to come to terms with is how dispiriting the breaks are. So normally a break in itself, it gives you an opportunity to refresh, to relax, then sort of, you know, to regroup. But for the lecturer who spends all their time looking at your faces during the lecture and then seeing the joy, the smiles <laughs> during the break, you can't help but feel that maybe the problem is with the lecturer themselves. <laughs> we never managed to elicit those kind of smiles. See, look how much you're smiling now. And the second I say something about international economic law, there we go. Before we proceed with neoliberalism, I'd like to make a key point here about these different models. It's one that I forgot to say earlier, so I'd like to tell you now. Each one of these models is based on a compromise. And the compromise is between capital on one hand and labor on the other. So Ford acknowledged then the importance of labor to the success of Ford, not just in terms of the skills they possessed, but also their purchasing power. So we acknowledge the interdependence. The same then with import substitution, export-led growth, we knew then that we needed a largely agrarian population to pursue, ultimately, a new type of endeavor. You had to convert them. Now, you weren't going to do this at the, barrel of a, or the end of a barrel of a gun. You were going to do this then by getting some type of buy-in, cooperation on the part of the populace. Now, Capital, capitalists, those wielding capital, are interested in seeing that because with export-led growth, with import substitution, you're ultimately then going to generate greater wealth. How are you going to generate greater wealth? By carving into the market share of those other companies and states that are already producing the stuff that you want to produce. So you're going to get a piece of the pie. But I need the population to do that. So it wasn't seeing the population in terms of the way they were historically, in slaves, free labor, but rather there's a compromise that's meant to be reached. Even if I try to be, even if I ultimately prove exploitative of labor, I recognize that I still need labor. And so there is a compromise that is reached there. Now what did this look like in Europe? 
Well, this is very relevant to what it looked like in Europe because Europe is ultimately what gave rise to neoliberalism and itself has shaped international economic law today. Well, in Europe, it looked like what you could call a marriage and a marriage between workers and capitalists. Why do I say marriage? We took capitalist, capitalist economics on one hand based on accumulation and distribution via the market and with workers, democracy, democratic politics. So capitalist economics in the left hand and democratic politics in the right. And these two were fused to produce what is termed in the literature either democratic capitalism or welfare capitalism. What this meant was that we would redistribute, so listen to this, this is key, redistribute the proceeds of the market, redistributing the proceeds of the market to the public. So we know a market economy is going to produce, generate wealth. That's the nature of capitalism. It's about accumulation. But because of the nature of capitalism and private ownership of the means of production, it means that that wealth is going to end up in the pockets of the owner, the capitalist. So the compromise that is reached is that some of the wealth, some of the money in that pocket is going to be redistributed. So this compromise was reached in two ways. The one hand, which is the less obvious one, and I'll say this one first, is regulations in industrial relations. Regulations in industrial relations. So in many European states, what we had was institutionalized collective bargaining. Unions were not the enemies that they are presented as today, or at least in the UK. They were acknowledged as being a key stakeholder within society. And so we institutionalized collective bargaining. And yes, there was, there were tensions and there were strikes and there were lockouts. But there was an acknowledgement of the contribution that workers made to the success of the economic model. And so there was an acceptance that to reach that compromise, we would encourage that type of collective bargaining. The second right that was provided in industrial relations, so on one hand, the right to bargain collectively, and second, the right to withdraw your labor. The right to withdraw your labor. So we often think of that as strikes, but you can also think of it in terms of just resigning or quitting. Now again, put this in context. You take this for granted. This has been normalized for you. Of course you can quit your job. But go back to the 19th century, where, or actually early 20th century, you could have been an indentured servant. And so there was no possibility of you quitting. You could have been a slave. So there was no possibility of you quitting. You were expropriated 
from the value from your labor. And so this right to bargain collectively, this right to withdraw your labor, those were the compromises that were reached, one of the compromises that was reached between capitalists and workers. You can withdraw. You can bargain with me collectively. You can form unions. You can build up your strength then as an association. The idea behind the regulated industrial relations is that it provides a counterbalance to the power that owners have since they possess the means of production. A very nice counterbalance. So I think of this in terms of my own status here. So I am a staff member at the university. If the head of school, if management approaches me and says, hey listen, we're dissatisfied with your work, I say, hold on a second, and I pull out my phone, and I make a phone call to who? Anyone know? To the union, precisely. And I say, I think I'm about to be fired. <laughs> Can you send someone down? And I turn to the employer and I say, hold on, I'm not having this conversation until my union rep is here. Now, how does that change then the relation between the employer and the worker? What happens in that moment? If you are the employer, you're the owner, and the worker says to you, I'm sorry, you have to wait until my union rep comes. What do they understand in that moment? They don't have all the power? What? Fair point. How can we build on that? They don't have all the power, meaning what? They have to recognize my rights as a worker, which are instituted not just in my contract, but also in the collective agreement. But beyond that, what else is there? Who is their dispute with now? Is the dispute with me alone? with the union as a whole. So this is why we say it ends up being a counterbalance because on the one hand, the employer does have the ability to terminate you. They own the means of production. So if they say to you, don't come in tomorrow, what do you do? Do you force your way in? No, of course not. You just don't come in. So there needed to be a counterbalance and industrial relations was part of that compromise. So that's why I say it's one that people often forget about, largely because labor laws and unions have taken such a beating in the past couple of decades. But the second one, which you are more familiar with, is what's termed universal, universal social policy. That was the second part of the compromise. So through progressive taxation, through progressive taxation, could access health care. Through progressive taxation, could access education. Through progressive taxation, you could access housing, public transport, all of these things. All of that was part of the compromise. Remember what Ford was saying in terms of how they're going to achieve success in the production of these cars. It's not just by building the best car, but also by creating a market. And how do I create a market? By paying the salaries, paying staff, paying workers an adequate salary. But in addition to the adequate salary, we also need the infrastructure that's going to improve their standard of living. And that is where all of that social policy comes in. Now there were two effects then of this compromise, two important effects. The first one was material, the second one was ideological. 
The material effect was rising living standards. And one looks at the UK, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and you see an upward trajectory. An upward trajectory. But ideologically, what it also achieved, and this relates then to the devastation, the loss then, or the, um, the triumph of capitalism over socialism, the near universal, near universal endorsement of capitalism and democracy. So what did capitalism and democracy produce? Rising living standards. Increased purchasing power. Everyone owns a television. Everyone owns a washing machine. Many people now own land. So things that would have been an impossibility, not just because they didn't exist, but because of the dependence that existed in the 17th, 18th, 19th, early 20th century, we had now achieved an economic model that allowed for a certain type of individual autonomy. Compromise between capitalism on one hand, capitalists on one hand, and workers on the other. Now the marriage worked very well for two reasons. The first one, this was a single family home. So think of the nation state. Social policy, industrial relations, industrial policy, production, all of this is happening within the nation state. But we also have access, remember what we said, we need access to resources and access to markets. So as much as we're building an internal market here, we also have access because of the colonies to some very affordable resources. So the colonies ultimately fueled then the compromise that was reached in Europe. So Europe itself, our lifestyles, I think most of you are well aware of it, or at least I hope you're well aware of it, our lifestyles were contingent then on the exploitation of resources elsewhere. Would your mobile phones work if it wasn't for Nigeria? No. Why? Anyone know? Why is Nigeria essential? Well, not just for your mobile phones, for your laptops. Raw materials such as? Right? Lithium. Was it 60% of the world's reserves in Nigeria? It could not. You could not have what you have in front of you if it wasn't for them. That interdependence I was pointing to. So all of that was informed on one hand, and importantly, by the resources that could be, that could be accessed. And on the markets then that were created. Now the marriage, and I said to you up until 1970s, we see that upward trajectory. The marriage began to break down, leading effectively to a divorce by the 1970s. Why? There were two revolutions that triggered this divorce. One was scientific and the other was political. The scientific revolution was essential for the political revolution. So if we think chicken or the egg, they did both happen simultaneously, but I suspect it was, if it wasn't for the scientific revolution, we wouldn't have had the political revolution. I've mentioned this to you before, the compression of time and space. 
the compression of time and space. The compression of time and space enabled one thing related to production that ultimately decimated much of the manufacturing that was taking place in the UK. Time-space compression allowed for the denationalization of production. I could produce goods elsewhere and ship them here. So what is the most common phrase then in relation to Brexit these days where they're talking about goods that are coming from Europe and how even a two-minute delay would cause economic collapse? Why do they say that? Because the goods are being produced elsewhere and then shipped and there's an entire infrastructure there's an entire network that is operating. There are, many of you don't know this, unless you've studied advanced uh, contract law, there are contracts that are being made, not just electronically, but automatically. You don't actually have individuals involved in the process. The systems are set up to trigger these contracts automatically. We've eliminated then people in the equation. Sorry, law students. <laughs> We've eliminated people and these contracts are making themselves with the networks that we have built. So Tesco doesn't call anyone to say, hey, I need a bushel of apples. Its mainframe contacts the mainframe in Italy to ship it. The order is placed, the order is paid for, the transfer goes through, the crates end up on the truck, and the truck is crossing the Italian-French border within hours. Now imagine that. So this in itself denationalized production. Production didn't need to happen within the nation-state anymore. Now go back to what I said to you before, the key tension within international economic law, mercantilism, liberalism. So we want to create then this internal market, this single market. We want the free flow of goods, the free flow of capital, the free flow of services. Not so much the free flow of people, but at least those items. We want those free flows. But before, we were doing that because it was going to enhance collective welfare. Collective welfare that is conceptualized at the nation-state level. Mercantilism. But now when we've denationalized production, and what I said to you, there was a compromise that was reached between capital and workers. Workers said, we need your investment, we want the jobs, we want the additional skills, we want the purchasing power. We're happy to pay the taxes to get the services, the social policy. We'll do all of that. We will have a robust labor system, a robust labor law. And the capitalist said, yes, you know what? I can't do this without you. So we reach a compromise. Then, once we've denationalized production, what happened to that interdependence? Now I realize that, in fact, your unionized salary costs significantly more than the non-unionized salary that I could pay someone else elsewhere. I'll give you an example, an easy example, and we'll move on to the next part. 
Easy example, a lot of the car manufacturing moved from the United States to Canada. And this took place roughly in the 90s. In the 90s, why? International economic law perspective following the signing of NAFTA. Some of it happened in the 80s. There was an agreement or treaty specifically related to cars, and then it continued with NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which has since been rebranded something else. But why did American manufacturing move to Canada? What social policy, one key social policy, distinguishes the United States from Canada? What do Americans have to pay for that Canadians do not? Healthcare. Healthcare. But because of unionization, part of the agreement, the collective agreement, was that the company itself would pay the insurance of its workers, the health insurance. But if I shift all the work to Canada, who is now paying their health insurance? Sort of. No one is because we don't have that concept of health insurance. You actually have socialized medicine. It's part of the social policy. So now each worker that was costing you an extra three or four thousand a year, that is gone automatically. So the savings that you could achieve in that way were significant. And because of the trade agreement that had been signed between the United States and Canada, late 70s, early 80s, that related specifically to manufacturing, you could now send these vehicles across the border. And the savings that you accrued by eliminating the cost of insurance offset anything additional that you had to pay for either transport or the minimal tariffs that existed at the time. So now that manufacturing that made in America began to lose a little bit of sheen. It wasn't so important that it was made in America. It now became important that it was sold in America but now it's made elsewhere. And then eventually, when NAFTA came in, it was now made in Mexico. And in Mexico, I can pay them even less. The denationalization of production, the denationalization of production, the mobile phones you have, the laptops you have, the shoes you're wearing, where do the materials come from? Chances are they come from different locations. Where were they made? Chances are each component was made somewhere, shipped, and assembled. And you notice before you would have the made in, and now you often have the assembled in. Because it's not made, it's assembled. And it's made elsewhere. But it's a variety of components. So I remember looking at a map and you had with just a shoe, a pair of shoes, a pair of shoes made in actually six or seven different countries. Denationalization of production made possible by time-space compression. I can move goods at such a pace now, I don't have to do it locally. I can get to the market in a variety of ways. And what type of laws does that necessitate then? Of course, free trade. It is essential to have free trade. That is the only way I can move these goods if I build an economic model around that. So time-space compression provided capitalists with alternatives to a domestic labor force. And because they now had this 
alternative, we experience a political revolution. And the political revolution is the rejection of that compromise that I told you about between the capitalists and the workers. I don't have to compromise with you anymore. So now I can make more demands. I'm going to eliminate this, you're going to give up that, or else I am moving production elsewhere. It is amazing to me to witness, and this reminds me of a case that I had worked on some years ago. It is amazing for me to witness what is taking place here as you're hearing Sony is moving its headquarters to Amsterdam. Land Rover threatening then to move elsewhere. I hope they don't take the cafe. <laughs> All these different companies closing up shop and leaving and it's just happening and everyone's saying, oh, this is terrible, terrible, terrible. And I laugh because I recall some years ago working on a case when I was in Canada as a practitioner. And I was working on a case and the question was, what fine was the company going to pay for moving its operation out of the country? And when you look at that, that was actually very common because there was an agreement reached by the company when it set up shop in there that it was going to receive in exchange for this taxation level, these incentives, it would make a commitment to being there. And there was a penalty associated with a departure. But those are gone. Denationalization of production. Companies are not mercantile in their thinking. Not one bit. So, we have a rejection because of the possibility of production flight. And we have loosened capital controls. So there is the possibility of capital flight. I already said to you before, do you ever send money abroad? Or more than likely, does family members ever send money to you from abroad? Answer is yes. Was this possible just a generation ago? Answer, no. Why? Capital controls. So this type of economic model necessitates the liberalization that we keep hearing in the media, in or reading in the textbooks, over and over. Free trade is essential for a denationalized form of production. And production has been denationalized. Which is why all of this talk about make America great again, all of this talk about well, Britain for Brits, is empty rhetoric. It is nonsense. It has no meaning. It has no meaning because everything has already been denationalized. The economic activities, the social activities, the infrastructure, so the idea that erecting a wall is going to change anything demonstrates how anachronistic the thinking surrounding our politics is today.